Welcome once again to Evidence-Based Radio. I fear I might have to stop saying the second wave of quarantine because I feel in some respects like I'm going to forever be recording this show from my room. I really do actually miss the studio. I had a lot of fun there. Um, But Omicron is... uh, It's just keeps coming. And there is, as we talked about last week, the newer strains of Omicron have uh, overtaken in the U.S. And once again, lots of people are getting sick. And so I definitely don't want to be in a place where there is poor ventilation uh, in a basement. And um yeah. Uh, <laughs> now I have been out and about, so I can't say that I haven't been out and about. I uh, was at the Cape for a couple of days with my partner and the dogs, and then I went and visited my parents, but I'm still wearing a mask as much as I can. Uh, but I found even I've started to forget occasionally And so usually I'll forget for the first few minutes and then I'll be like, wait, what am I doing? It is no longer 2019. And so, yeah. Anyways, we are going to, again, take a break from talking about COVID for the most part uh, because everything is kind of terrible. And I do want to talk about a couple of important updates slash corrections But then we're just going to talk about space because it's pretty much the only thing that isn't on fire right now. (laughs) And um, yeah, I am trying to be positive and uh, not all of the space stories are necessarily good, but um, they are definitely a lot more neutral than other things at the moment. Things that I don't want to talk about because then this will just turn into a 50 minute long rant about uh, things that are terrible in the U.S. at the moment. And that's not this show. This show is not about that. Uh, Though sometimes it's really hard to resist the urge to spend the entire night talking about current affairs, given what's happening right now. But I am not going to do that because this is supposed to be a science show and it is specifically supposed to be a show about the joys of science and how it continues to attempt, however, uh, you know, well that attempt takes place to uplift us and to allow us to learn more about the world around us. So um, first off, I recently talked about a study that claimed to show that certain chemicals in sunscreens are implicated in deaths of corals. Now, this isn't to say that that is completely wrong, but a critical review pointed out that when looking at UV filters in seawater near coral reefs across 12 studies, the concentrations of the chemicals were found to be in the nanogram per liter range, whereas the papers that reported on toxicity looked at the effects of micrograms to milligrams per liter, which is a much higher dose. 
And as the old adage goes, of course, the dose makes the poison. And so one of the big famous examples of that is saccharin. And so there's a little uh, warning on Sweet and Low and other saccharin-based products that says may cause cancer. Um, And the study that formed that was basically they took huge amounts of saccharin and injected it into rats. And lo and behold, the rats got cancer. Uh, That might even have been one of those uh, studies where they use the wrong kind of rats that are actually prone to getting cancer. I don't remember specifically, but sometimes that kind of thing happens. And so the critical study, again, isn't discounting that there could be an effect. It is simply saying that while this doesn't preclude these chemicals from harming corals, it suggests that much more research is needed. And so they suggest that more samples should be collected around coral reefs in order to assess the actual environmental levels of these chemicals. Secondly, they suggest that researchers, quote, develop a standard coral toxicity test that can generate reliable, accurate, and chronic endpoints from dose-response relationships using appropriate test durations. Basically, set up a standard because when they looked at the tests, they were all over the place. And finally, they suggest developing a robust environmental risk assessment to see if there is a real response in the environment to these chemicals. And so they suggest a two-pronged approach, which is that there should be preliminary studies in these areas. And if they show real effect, then they should uh, really do a much more robust and larger research product to determine real toxicity levels, which of course could then be used to develop recommendations for potential legislation. And in fact, the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine in the U.S. are currently conducting a more thorough evaluation, which is looking at both toxicity of sunscreens to coral as well as potential public health implications. So the idea is that you also want to look at if removing these sunscreens from the market is going to severely um, affect people and their ability to not get skin cancer. Because if removing these is going to be a really problematic issue, you can do it through other mitigating means. So for instance, you can say you can't use it on certain beaches, but if you're just going to be, say, out in the backyard, and that's not necessarily going to end up in the ocean, uh, except in very rare and uh, long and winding ways, then you know it might be fine to use in those sorts of situations. But it's important to have real data in order to make those kinds of recommendations and to really look into what needs to be done. So right now, uh, in true capitalist fashion, a lot of sunscreens have started slapping on a label that says, um, you know, coral reef safe or ocean safe or things like that. And um, as with many of those labels, I just want to point out that there is absolutely no regulation around what it means 
in order to uh, have that label on there. There's no uh, actual guidelines from the government as to what a label like that would indicate. And so uh, definitely I would not be relying on that information to make a decision as to what kind of sunscreen you are going to put on because it's very much like, you know, uh, labels like free range, for instance, uh, and other things that sound really good. Uh, my personal pet peeve is always uh, raised without antibiotics on chickens because that's actually a different one because you actually can't raise chickens with antibiotics. Uh, there's an actual law against it, but the fact that they advertise it like they're doing some sort of good uh, just drives me nuts. But anyways, back to uh, sunscreen and especially to coral reefs. And so in the end, researchers suggest that if there is an effect on coral reefs, frankly, it most likely pales in comparison to more pressing concerns like ocean warming, acidification, which is a huge problem for coral reefs, which are made of calcium carbonate. And as oceans acidify, it gets much harder to maintain uh, calcium carbonate shells and structures. And, um, you know, other issues like industrial and agricultural runoff, that causes algae blooms that can affect coral reefs and a lot of other things that are definitely bigger and more pressing. Now, of course, again, we do want to do the studies. We want to make sure that we're not contributing to further stressing an environment that is both already stressed and is incredibly important. And as with all of the oceans, we don't understand it as much as we should. So definitely need to keep doing that research. So on a, another front, this is the other uh, sort of update correction. Uh, and so a new survey of the possible surge of unexplained hepatitis in children suggests that there may not have actually been a true surge or outbreak. And so one survey in Europe did find elevated numbers in some countries, but another survey in Europe didn't. And the CDC has now looked at it and they have reported no increase in cases compared to pre-pandemic levels for pediatric liver transplants, U.S. emergency room visits, or hospitalizations for pediatric hepatitis between October 2021 and March 2022. They also reported that there was not an increase in adenovirus in stool samples during this period compared to pre-pandemic levels. And um, if you remember when I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, one of the suggestions is that there might have been a mutation to an adenovirus that was causing this to happen in children. But again, it's really hard to track this sort of thing, especially when you have patients in really disparate areas. And so now a World Health Organization team led by Philippa Easterbrook, who is an infectious disease physician and the senior scientist in the Global Hepatitis Program 
in the HIV department at WHO headquarters in Geneva. Uh, that team plans to survey hepatologists at pediatric liver units and intensive care units worldwide in order to gather pre-pandemic data to better compare to the current data set, as well as gathering any newer data that they have to add to that data set. And again, this is not suggesting that there isn't a real phenomena, rather that it's actually been happening for many years now, kind of as a baseline, under the radar, low level amount of this kind of thing happening. And so it may just not be a surge, that it might have just been a surge in attention, one can say, rather than a true uptick in cases. And with COVID-19 going on, I think that people are a lot more aware of disease and uh, people have sort of focused more on diseases now than they might have before. So things like monkeypox and this outbreak potentially of hepatitis and other um, infectious diseases and other things that are affecting people are a little bit more on the forefront of people's minds due to the fact that we've kind of been conditioned to talk about uh, medical issues in the last couple of years. And so a case control study from the UK looking at adenovirus infection rates in children hospitalized with and without hepatitis uh, should be released soon, and that will give researchers more evidence as to whether or not there is a possible causal link between adenovirus and pediatric hepatitis. And so really, this is something um, I remember my friend Sue actually uh, flagged this for me a couple of years ago. Um, she follows CDC, um, the CDC email that is sort of the infectious disease uh, newsletter, shall we say. Um, and, you know, she had pointed it out to me and said, you know, that's really weird and concerning. And so it has been going on for a while now. But um, hopefully they are going to be able to at least determine um, some better data as to what might be the possible cause because uh, even one or two cases of this pediatric hepatitis uh, is potentially too many because if we can find a reason for it, hopefully we can find a reason, I mean, a way in which to combat it because, you know, kids having to have liver transplants and having to be on uh, drugs that suppress their immune system for the rest of their lives, that's not a good outcome. And so hopefully we'll be able to develop better ways to combat this. All right. So again, we are now going to leave the world of uh, the earth, um, well, in some respects, and we're going to talk about space. And some of it's going to be uh, the first, the first uh, thing I'm going to talk about is rather salty, I will admit. But um, we're going to talk about the uh, JW Space Telescope and how awesome that is. And we'll talk about some other stuff. But uh, first off, I want to lead with talking about 
some information that dropped recently and that further colors the supposed unexplained sightings from the U.S. government's UFO report. Oh boy, uh, this is a um, this is a stunner. And so recently, Travis Taylor, a former DOD astrophysicist, but also a regular on the History Channel's Ancient Aliens, and even worse, the secrets of Skinwalker Ranch, has claimed that he was the quote-unquote chief scientist for the study. Wow. Well, that explains why so many skeptics and optics experts have been scratching their heads ever since the report came out as to why only one of the 143 sightings was listed as solved. I find it very difficult to believe federal authorities gave Taylor a prominent role in preparing the UFO UFO report, says Seth Shostak, an astronomer at the SETI Institute. And um, I would say that he's also a little bit of a professional skeptic. Um, But obviously, he's someone who's interested in looking for aliens, um, just, you know, doing it the real way by looking for their signals far, far away. And so the Journal Science reports that, quote, Taylor did serve in a lead role with the government's Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, or UAP, task force, which produced 2021's fuzzy UFO report, Pentagon spokesperson Susan Goh confirmed to Science Insider, but Taylor was, quote, informally referred to as the chief scientist as efforts to assemble a larger team were underway and that it was not a full-time position. Still, in addition to his credulous belief in UAPs or UFOs, he apparently told George Knapp, a longtime UFO and paranormal enthusiast and reporter in Las Vegas. So if you are a UFO documentary watcher like I am, um, I admit, <laughs> I have a very weird relationship with these things. <laughs> I was actually at my parents' house the other day and my mom, I was watching um, these these woods are haunted. And my mom was like, why do you watch these things? And I'm like, I just, I just find them fascinating. It's, it's a sociological experiment as far as I'm concerned. I just, you know, it'll take too long to try and explain all of the complicated reasons why I like these shows and hate them all at the same time. But anyways, uh, you will often find Nap as a regular in these shows. And so, uh, Taylor told him that after working at Skinwalker Ranch, the that poltergeist-like entities had followed him home to Alabama and started causing mayhem. My car has started and stopped itself, Taylor said. Once, after his car stuttered in his driveway, Taylor said he looked up and there was an odd vortex in the clouds above my house. <sighs> I... Look, I am willing to leave a microscopic door open for the possibility of UFOs, 
but I'm pretty sure that there are no uh, poltergeist-like entities harassing uh, Taylor. I just, that's a bridge too far for me. Um, I think he just spent too much time around really credulous people like himself. And then when he got home, some weird stuff happened and he attributed it to the supernatural because when you spend time around people who attribute everything to the supernatural, it's bound to catch on. Um, And so, yeah. And Taylor actually told an app that he was offered the job by Jay Stratton at the Office of Naval Intelligence in 2019. Interestingly, both now work for Radiance Technologies, a defense contractor. Now, this is a big case of, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed, but I'll let Jason Calavito, uh, a skeptic who has spent years debunking ancient aliens and paranormal theories, have the last word on this. Now, it's a bit of a long quote, but I really wanted to uh, quote the bulk of it because he's just, he encapsulates, I think, a lot of what skeptics feel about this, uh, myself included. Um, he's a little angrier than I am. I'm mostly just disappointed, but. So he writes, Travis Taylor admits to being a paid government UFO researcher. While serving in this capacity, Taylor appeared on CBS Sunday Morning in 2021 to analyze UFO videos and comment on the imminent UFO report without disclosing to CBS or to the audience that he was a paid government UFO researcher working on that very report. He also, oh, sorry, he has appeared since then on both Ancient Aliens and The Secrets of Skinwater. Walker Ranch to analyze and research UFOs without disclosing to the audience that he served as a paid government analyst of the same material he discussed on the History Channel as a quote-unquote independent analyst. Taylor also works for a defense contractor analyzing UFOs for the federal government. Taylor and his former UAPTF boss now work for the same contractor. The shocking lack of ethics astonishes even me, as does the incestuous relationship between government UFO quote-unquote research and cable TV UFO media. We should all be disgusted that the Pentagon and Congress continue to patronize the same crew of lying spooks and kooks orbiting Skinwalker Ranch, people who have turned up no evidence of alien or space ghosts after decades of taxpayer-subsidized research, people who frequently who frequent shows claiming racist space aliens had sex with prehistoric women, people who grift across UFO conferences and media, people who have no compunction about lying to the public while collecting media and government checks. It's corrupt and bright red lines that should never have been crossed. Yeah, he's a little bit more angry than I am. I I guess I'm a little bit more jaded and used to this sort of thing, (laughs) to be honest. Um, Yeah, I'm completely unsurprised. And um, so, yeah, this this happens a lot. And, um, 
you know, what's frustrating about it is that it, it it's also the kind of thing that fuels conspiracy theories about like how the government is doing all of this as a disinformation campaign, which, you know, I think most UFOs are just misidentified natural phenomena or phenomena that we don't yet understand, but that is natural uh, and is caused by some sort of weird atmospheric thing that we just haven't understood yet. Because there's lots of weird atmospheric things that we still don't quite understand very well. Like, we understand ball lightning, but it's still really weird. Uh, Geolites that happen sometimes uh, around and uh, before and after earthquakes, weird, very weird. And there's all sorts of other things, uh, sprites in the upper atmosphere, all sorts of crazy things that we just don't know anything about. And some of it almost certainly is next generation government uh aircraft that are being tested in, especially near, you know, there's all these sightings near airports and uh, Navy Navy and Air Force bases. And, um, you know, some of that is undoubtedly actually the new generation of stealth airplanes or whatever the heck we are wasting billions of dollars developing. Um and so I don't think that there actually is a real conspiracy going on here. I think it's just a mix, as most skeptics will tell you, of actual government secret planes and absolutely the majority is almost certainly misidentified, misconstrued, atmospheric or um, astronomical objects. And so a lot of times people are very concerned about things like the moon and I'm sorry, not the moon, but they'll see stars and they'll think it's a UFO because it's not moving right or Venus. That was the one I was looking for. Sorry. Uh, Venus is often uh, mistaken for a UFO. And again, like I said, I saw a UFO the other day. Um, and so I'm not surprised that it, uh, is something that people are concerned about because it was weird. I'll admit it. It was weird. But my first thought was not, oh my God, it's aliens. My first thought was, that's weird. That that plane is probably really, really high up. And it's shiny for some reason. They're not usually that shiny. And that was it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I didn't think to immediately call someone and get myself on a talk show about aliens or anything like that. Um, I think we spend entirely too much time worrying about things like this. And uh, that's a, that is a rent for another day. Um, I'm not going to get started down that road because, uh, you know, there is a very real phenomena of pushing people towards spending a lot of their time and energy thinking about and railing against things that are, at the end of the day, completely inconsequential and uh, really distracting them from the things that are consequential. All right. On that note, we are going to take a break and a breath. <laughs> and when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, mostly good things. Um, we're going to talk about astronauts in space, which, you know, 
there's there's some issues going on there, but potentially not insurmountable. So we're going to be on the upswing on the way back, uh, on the back half hour. So uh, yeah, please stay tuned for some show promos and some PSAs, and I'll be back in a few minutes. You are listening to Evidence Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player, each week presenting shows which can at times be organized and orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton, so come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And uh, as I said earlier, we are going to be talking about space because space is pure and simple. Well, not simple, but uh, (laughs) go with me here. 
uh, and, you know, largely untouched by politics. Yes, I am pointedly ignoring recent events on the International Space Station. Uh, to that, I can only say, thanks, I hate it. Um, <laughs> so, back in 2020, NASA's OSIRIS-REx spacecraft uh, did something that was totally amazing um, and collected samples from the surface of the asteroid Bennu. And so um, we already talked a little bit about uh, the sampling that Japan did. So, you know, we aren't the only ones out there doing this, but this is a new thing that uh, space agencies are doing and it's really, really cool. Uh, we already talked about Ryugu a bit, um, but this is Bennu. And so while taking those samples, the craft measured forces on the surface, which gave researchers a chance to test the poorly understood near subsurface physical properties of rubble pile asteroids. And so a team from the Southwest Research Institute has crunched the data and they've reported that the layer directly below the asteroid's surface seems to be composed of weakly bound rock fragments containing twice the void space as the asteroid as a whole. The low gravity of rubble pile asteroids such as Bennu weakens its near subsurface by not compressing the upper layers, minimizing the influence of particle cohesion, said SWRI's Dr. Kevin Walsh, lead author of a paper about this research published in the journal Science Advances. We conclude that a low-density, weakly bound subsurface layer should be a global property of Bennu, not just localized to the contact point. And so a rubble pile asteroid is rather as advertised. Uh, we've talked about how scientists aren't always very creative in their naming conventions. And, you know, usually that's for a good reason. Name something what it is. Um, and so these asteroids consist of rock fragments and debris that, in the case of Bennu, is spheroid. Uh, they're not always spheroid. And so basically it's a bunch of rocks held together by gravity. They are thought to form via collisions involving larger main asteroid belt objects. And so according to Walsh, researchers involved in the mission have measured Bennu's thermal properties and craters to estimate the strength and porosity of discrete particles of rubble pile asteroids. With this new data, researchers will be able to probe the the ensemble of particles, also called regolith, like that found on the moon, at, at an asteroid's surface, controlling and influencing the long-term evolution of the object. The SAMCAM images bracketing the moment of contact show the contact caused considerable disturbance at the sample site, said Dr. Ron Belouz, a co-author from Johns Hopkins University's Applied Physics Laboratory. Nearly every physical particle is moved or re reorientated at all points along the circumference of TAG-SAM, which is the sort of the scoop part, up to a 15-inch radius. Now, one thing they saw was an almost 16-inch rock being reoriented and a small and small debris lifted off 
of its surface as the sampler made contact with the asteroid. So once again, this suggests that the material on the surface of the asteroid is loosely tied to the body and is not strongly attached via the internal gravity. The researchers had theorized that the average regolith particle size increases as asteroid size decreases. This is because larger bodies have more gravity to retain small pieces of debris. They then compared the results from Bennu to that of the asteroids Ryugu and Itakawa. We discovered a dichotomy between the rough boulder-covered surfaces of Bennu and Ryugu versus Itakawa which includes ponds of smaller particles across 20% of its surface, Walsh said. This could have several explanations, including that the latter's near surface has compressed enough to frustrate these microparticles percolating into the interior, or perhaps the granular deposits are subsurface layers revealed by a recent disruptive reorganization of the body. Walsh notes that after the collection event, rocks and dust erupted into a debris plume and exposed material that was darker, redder, and more abundant in fine particles in comparison to the original surface. So you can learn a lot from just a momentary scoop of uh, material from an asteroid. And so basically what they found out was that these asteroids tend to have, um, you know, basically a kind of, they're kind of like the moon in a little bit, uh, especially Bennu, not quite as much dust, like the regolith on the moon is very um, sort of fluffy. And I don't think the surface of Bennu is nearly that fluffy. There's more like rocky um, regolith, but it's definitely interesting to find out that it's, you know, it's not a solid rock. It is a bunch of rocks, big rocks, and then there's a lot of tiny rocks and smaller rocks that are on the surface that are, you know, attached weakly to it. And so it's really interesting because, of course, all of these objects are very old and they come from the early uh, formation of the solar system. So all of the information we're finding out about them is helping us to learn more about how the solar system developed. And so that leads in to our next asteroid that we're going to be talking about because NASA is uh, on its way in the next couple of years to another asteroid. And so in uh, anticipation of that, astronomers have produced the most detailed map of 16 Psyche, an asteroid in the main asteroid belt, which is, as I mentioned, the target of a new spacecraft mission, actually should be launching later this year, all things, uh, keep all your fingers crossed. And so Psyche is a an M-type asteroid. Uh, surprisingly, as we've noted, M stands for metal, which is thought to be its main component. And so this is actually a weird potato shape. They're not all spheroid. Uh, sometimes they're oblate spheroids. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, this one looks more like a potato than a globe. And so scientists believe it's the exposed metal core 
of a protoplanet, with the crust and mantle having been bombarded and thus stripped away. Now, it was originally thought to be mostly metallic, but recent estimates of the mass and density suggest that the core is more of a complex mix of metals and silicates. Of course, it could also have been a parent body for a particular class of stony iron meteorites that was broken up and reaccreted into the mix of metal and silicates we see today. Or it could be a dwarf planet like Ceres, with the addition of a period of iron volcanism contributing to the large sections of high metallic composition. So, again, we don't know yet. If it's the remains of a protoplanet, it would give us a unique opportunity to examine how rocky planets in our solar system formed. We believe that there are metallic cores in the center of all of the rocky planets, but obviously those cores are too deep to directly sample or examine. And so last year, a new map of the asteroid was constructed using data from the complete array of 66 radio antennas at the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array, or ALMA, in Chile. This allowed them to mimic a telescope with a diameter of 16 kilometers and to create a map with a resolution of 20 miles per pixel, which seems like a lot, but was much better than they had had before. This then allowed them to create a map of thermal emissions and a high-resolution 3D model of Psyche. Now, high-resolution re- there is a little bit of a uh, relative term, as we said, 20 miles per pixel. So when I looked at the 3D model, it's pretty it's it's pretty um, uh, low-res for what you would consider to be something that could be high-res. Uh, and so it's basically just kind of the lumps and sort of a, a basic map of the indentations. There's no uh, surface features or anything like that. So... Uh, it's definitely not the kind of high-resolution image that you might see from, say, uh, new images from the JW telescope. Um, <laughs> and so the latest map is based on hundreds of permutations of computer-generated scenarios based on the different distributions of surface material composition. They then compared those maps to the heat distribution to find the best match. They found that while the asteroid is rich in metal, its distribution varies across the surface with a varied distribution of silicates as well. They also found the material at the bottom of the craters changes temperature faster than those along the rim as the asteroid rotates. This suggests that there might also be ponds of fine-grained sands on this asteroid. These data show that Psyche's surface is heterogeneous, Heterogeneous, with possible remarkable variation in composition, said Simone Marchi of the Southwest Research Institute, a co-investigator on the Psyche mission, uh, but who is not involved in the current study. One of the primary goals of the Psyche mission is to study the composition of the asteroid surface using its gamma rays, a neutron spectrometer, and a color imager. So the possible presence of compositional heterogeneities is something that the Psyche science team is eager to study more. So yeah, and so am I. I'm super excited to see new pictures of new asteroids because 
it's just so fascinating to see all these interesting, weird, and wonderful rocks. And uh, as anyone who knows me will know, I I love rocks. <laughs> I was at the Cape last week, and I came back with a bag full of rocks from the ocean. This is the editor. Our house looks like a quarry. So much love of rocks. Oh my goodness gracious. Big rocks in space, little rocks on the beach. I love them all. Okay. So again, we are now going to talk about some actual good news. <sighs> I could use some good news. Um, and so the JW Space Telescope is doing gangbusters. Now, despite my continuing frustration with its name, and I've settled on JW, uh, so I hope that that is uh, going to not confuse anyone. Uh, the telescope is poised to become a cornerstone. Cornerstone. That was an interesting uh, <laughs> pronunciation. Sorry about that. A cornerstone of astronomy for the next two decades or more. On Wednesday, NASA released a test image from the telescope uh, last Wednesday, noting that it's, quote, among the deepest images of the universe ever taken. And it's spectacular. <laughs> the image came from a stability test to demonstrate the capabilities of the fine guidance center built by the Canadian Space Agency that helps the telescope find and lock onto astronomical targets. The resulting engineering test image has some rough around the edges qualities to it, NASA said in a news release. It was not optimized to be a science observation. Rather, the data was taken to test how well the telescope could stay locked onto a target, but it does hint at the power of the telescope. It carries a few hallmarks of the views Webb has produced during its post-launch preparations. Bright stars stand out with their six long, sharply defined diffraction spikes, an effect due to Webb's six-sided mirror segments. Beyond the stars, galaxies fill nearly the entire background. Now, the first official images are set to be released Monday the 12th around 10.30 a.m. NASA has said that the images will include the deep, deepest field image of the universe ever taken, as well as the spectrum of an atmosphere around an exoplanet. And so they will be looking at the atmosphere's spectrum, which will allow detection of small molecules like carbon dioxide and ozone, which can give clues to the composition of atmospheres on distant exoplanets like this. The images are being taken right now, said Thomas Zuberchen, who leads NASA's scientific programs during a news conference on June 29th. There is already some amazing science in the can, and some others are yet to be taken as we go forward. We're in the middle of getting the history-making data down. Now, Zuberchen noted that he actually almost cried when looking at the first photos. It's really hard to not look at the universe in a new light and not just have a moment that is deeply personal, he said. It's an emotional moment when you see nature suddenly releasing some of its secrets, and I would like you to imagine and look forward to that. And so just earlier today, NASA has actually announced the five objects that are in the image set. WASP-96b is the exoplanet referred to earlier, 
And so it is an object that is larger than Jupiter, but has about half of the mass, suggesting that it's basically primarily made of atmosphere. It also has an orbital period of just 3.4 days around its star, which allows the atmosphere to be imaged twice a week. Next up is the Carina Nebula. This is going to be more about breathtaking imagery, but the resolution that is available with the JW may allow uh, for viewing of smaller scale structures and perhaps even the ability to map some of the flow of gas using red and blue shifting in the spectrum, among other cool scientific data about this nebula. Third up is SMAX0723 or SMACS, a star from the early universe that is visible due to a gravitational lensing area formed by a massive foreground galaxy cluster. And so that's one of the big things that the JW is looking for, is it's looking for places that have these gravitational lensing um, um, confluences where it can actually look past those galaxies to objects that are super, super, super far away and thus super, super, super old. Next up is Stefan's Quintet. This, this cluster of galaxies has been studied since the 1800s, and so this will be a chance to zoom in, uh, especially in on a thin shock wave in the gas between the galaxies to compare against earlier images from other telescopes. And finally, last but not least, the Southern Ring Nebula. This is another potential showstopper visually, but it's also another place where the ability to zoom in on fine details will be exciting. We still don't quite understand the ins and outs of planetary nebula, and getting a closer look will be a boon to discovering more about them. Okay, so we've talked about really cool, awesome, good news but uh, we are going to have to talk about some slightly bad news now. Um, but longtime listeners of the show should not be surprised about this because I've talked about it before. Um, and so longtime listeners will also know that I have strong opinions on human space exploration. Uh, long story short, for those who are not in the know, I think that robots are awesome and we should totally be learning more about the solar system around us but I'm less sure about the push for putting people into space, which is frankly pretty darn hostile to the human body. And I also have a very strong opinion that we should be focusing more on the earth and less about thinking about how we could potentially escape the earth because that's going to be a lot harder than just fixing what we already have. And uh, as a bonus, I also think we should be spending more time uh, studying the oceans rather than uh, other things because the oceans are right there and they're super important to us and we know very little about them. Okay, that is the uh, Reader's Digest version of all of my strong and complicated feelings about this. But <laughs> let's move now to the new research, which suggests that astronauts that spend more than six months in space can suffer decades worth of bone loss. Exposure to long bouts of microgravity causes astronauts to experience bone loss equivalent to two decades of aging. And so a new study published in Scientific Reports suggests that only half of the lost bone recovers after a year, 
which leaves astronauts with a decade of aging to their skeletal systems. Now, despite what you might think, um, because I don't think we normally think about it as much as we do with other parts of the body, bones are constantly growing and evolving, just like muscles. And so they reshape themselves under various stressors, including the mechanical strain caused by Earth's gravitational pull. But when that gravitational pull is reduced to microgravity, bones begin to weaken. We found that weight-bearing bones only partially recovered in most astronauts one year after spaceflight, lead author Lee Gable, an assistant professor in kinesthesiology at the University of Calgary, said in a statement, This suggests the permanent bone loss due to spaceflight is about the same as a decade worth of age-related bone loss on Earth. And so 17 astronauts were studied, 14 men and three women with an average age of 47 who had lived on the ISS from four to seven months. In order to gauge changes to the skeleton, the researchers scanned different regions such as wrists, ankles, and shins, both before and shortly after return from Uh, the ISS, as well as at six month and a year later intervals. Now the scans were taken using high resolution, peripheral, quantitative, computed tomography, which provides 3D images of human bone structures down to, um, I think down to the nanometer level. Um, So, you know, pretty small. These scans allowed researchers to determine the bone mineral content and bone density factors in determining the chances of bone fracture. And so they found that weight-bearing bones, such as the tibia, suffered the most damage. Of the 17 astronauts, only one recovered full bone strength. The eight astronauts who had spent more than six months in space fared the worst. They had a decade's worth of aging and could sustain 75 pounds of force less than before leaving the Earth. Now, arms, on the other hand, were much less affected, most likely because they are not load-bearing on Earth. Bones have two main components, the cortical and trabecular layers. The cortical part of the bone makes up around 80% and is the sort of outer shell For instance, the parts that you see when looking at a skeleton in a science classroom. The trabecular makes up the other 20% and consists of a honeycombed lattice that reinforces the bones from within. Losing bone density that many of those connections, um, sorry, losing bone density is equivalent to knocking some of the beams and struts out of this lattice. We've seen that many of those connections are lost during spaceflight, and so it is very likely that although new bone is is being formed upon return to Earth, the ability of the body to replace those missing rods is highly unlikely, Stephen Boyd, a radiology professor at the Cummings School of Medicine in Calgary, Canada, told Live Science, and previous research suggests that on a three-year round trip to Mars, one-third of astronauts would return with active osteoporosis. Now, 
it turns out also that many other parts of your body uh, deteriorate. And, uh, you know, this is because, well, humans evolved in this specific gravitational environment. And so muscles, eyes, brains, hearts, spines, and even the cells themselves can be damaged by prolonged exposure to microgravity. So, you know, everything gets confused because it's used to having a very specific directional pull on it. Now, there is some good news. Deadlift training on the ISS seems to slow the process, for instance. And so uh, a regime of targeted exercise and nutrition could help dampen the effects. Since cramped quarters will be a limiting factor on future exploration class missions, exercise equipment will need to be optimized for a smaller footprint, the scientists wrote in their study. Resistance training, uh, resistance exercise training, particularly deadlifts and other lower body exercises, will remain a mainstay for mitigating bone loss. However, adding a jumping exercise to on-orbit regimens may further prevent bone loss and reduce daily exercise time. So the researchers are now planning to work on a follow-up study in order to study the effects on astronauts who have spent more than seven months in space. And so, you know, this is part of their larger efforts to um, really assess the long-term uh, issues with space travel on the human body, because, of course, we do want to send people to Mars. Those who spent more time in space lost more bone, so it would be reasonable to assume that spending even longer time in space may mean further bone loss, Boyd said. This is obviously a concern for missions that may take years, such as Mars, but what we don't know is whether the human body reaches a plateau of bone loss at some point. It doesn't seem likely that the bones would entirely melt away, but we don't know at what level of bone loss equilibrium may be reached. So hopefully we will learn more. It will also help with people, uh, astronauts, when they return to Earth, knowing how to help them with that as well. All right, that is all the time we have for tonight. Thank you for listening, and I will be back next week. Good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.